Today's episode is brought to you by the cell phone service company, Ting. Please visit best.ting.com for a $25 service credit or device discount. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Comedian Lee Camp, The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, Citizen Radio, Jim Hightower, The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, The Media Matters Minute, The Rachel Maddow Show, and The Progressive. So many people believe fracking, a method of releasing oil or gas from rock, to be unsafe that hundreds of U.S. communities have voted to ban it. If you're unsure how to feel, NPR would like to help with that. The network ran a report March 20th that began by explaining that despite all the money coming out of the ground in some places... New York doesn't allow fracking, which, quote, causes landowners to feel they're being left behind, close quote. Listeners meet a three-generation family of dairy farmers whose rewarding but hard life is that much harder because they don't have, quote, any natural gas wells and the income that comes with them, close quote. Even if New York approves fracking, they still won't make as much money as landowners in Pennsylvania, where the process was approved earlier. But, explains NPR's David Chinatri, quote, drilling would still mean jobs, close quote. Well, who stands between these hardworking people and money and jobs coming out of the ground? It's actor Mark Ruffalo who is, quote, one of many artists and celebrities who have embraced the anti-fracking fight, close quote. Landowners, were told, quote, increasingly resent the antis, who they see as meddling outsiders who will never be convinced that fracking can be done safely, close quote. Well, rather than hear why they should be convinced, we hear from a resenter, a woman with six kids, three mortgages, and no health insurance, who wishes all those people would just stay in Hollywood. So, on one side, struggling family farmers, and on the other, rich celebrities from out of state. That's a tough one. But wait, two-thirds of the way through, we learn, quote, there is significant opposition to drilling among people sitting on gas as well. Concerns over water use, waste disposal, and impacts on the land. Their biggest fear is that drinking water will be contaminated, close quote. But we don't hear from any of those people or learn whether they work hard or have kids. And the piece moves merrily to its conclusion that while New York Governor Andrew Cuomo defends the state's approach, many landowners think he's really only worried about, quote, how fracking might affect his interest in higher office, close quote. moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Over the past 40 years, industry has blocked the Environmental Protection Agency from regulating 70,000 chemicals. I don't think there's the proper amount of yourself going on right now. The EPA has been blocked from regulating 70,000 chemicals. Can you wrap your head around how many that... 
That's 69,000 chemicals more than 1,000 chemicals. And the latest one to be part of this unregulated fun time is fracking fluid. The chemical cocktail that's pumped under our feet in amounts greater than the sweat pouring off a Rush Limbaugh's face in order to force the natural gas out of the rock. And the industry refuses to tell us what the liquid is. It could be McDonald's milkshake, it could be our car. We don't know what the it is. And it's seeping into our groundwater, into our aquifers, sometimes making tap water flammable. But what's the big deal? The only thing better than a water balloon fight is a flammable water balloon fight! And right now, the governor of New York is deciding whether to allow fracking in this state. And there's all these promises from the industry about doing it safely. Well, how can you do it safely when you won't tell the people who decide whether it's safe what the f*** it is? To begin with, there's something called the Halliburton loophole in the law. And generally, anything named after Halliburton makes non-consensual body piercing look like a Disney cartoon. The Halliburton loophole says that fracking fluids are exempt from all major EPA regulations. This stops fracking fluid from being defined as it should be, as hazardous waste. The last thing to illegitimately escape that designation were the Twilight movies, and we saw the damage that did. So we tell you it's going to be safe, except we won't tell you where it is, what it is, what it's doing to the people or animals, and we're going to demand a loophole saying that it uh, doesn't have to be safe. So when we say it's going to be safe, we mean that uh, it's, it's a funny thing about the word safe. It it's, it's, it's an acronym, and it stands for sexy and excellent, and, and there's one thing that's for sure, fracking is sexy and excellent. And look, I realize we need energy to power our cars, our lights, our sex toys, I get that, but we could also get that power by taking every family dog around the country and burning it. Or better yet, perhaps putting them on a large hamster wheel and tasering them if they stop running. We could get the power that way, and guess what? It would actually be less damaging to our children than fracking the entire planet they stand to inherit. And at the end of the day, we're basically doing to the Earth what we did with the Hindenburg. We're filling it with hazardous material and then seeing how it goes. Maybe it'll go fine. Of course, maybe we'll all go down in a ball of fire screaming something about humanity. But maybe it'll go fine. Well, it's hard to believe it sometimes But everything's gonna work out Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. Even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at Lee Camp net iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. But everything's gonna work out.
personally, when I want to learn more about the earth and climate science, I always turn to a Republican congressman. And so we have another lesson coming from one. This is Steve Stockman of Texas. He is very interested in the earth, and he wants to teach people what's so amazing about the earth. So he sent a couple of tweets. Let's bring up the first one. He says, the best thing about the earth is if you poke holes in it, oil and gas come out. <laughs> now, you only get 140 characters, so I will excuse a lot, but notice he had room for punctuation there. He could have fit in something that wasn't blatantly stupid, I think. Uh, another tweet, he says, there is reportedly $1 trillion in oil off the coast of California, but liberal hatred of science and human progress keeps them bankrupt. Right. That's that exactly that's exactly what's happening. Again, I like that he's so old school that he uses periods and capitalization on Twitter. I will give him points for that. I assume you will deduct points for the stupidity in regard oh to the, the environment. I, you know, I, I just want to make the point that I think that the best thing about the Earth is that it is the <laughs> only livable planet in the known universe. Uh -huh. So the only planet capable of supporting life. I think that's a pretty good thing. Mm -hmm. I, you that know, we know of. That we know of. Right yeah. now, so far, it's the only place that anything can survive. So uh -huh. I think that should be primarily the thing that he considers to be the best thing about the Earth. The idea that you can poke holes in it and get oil and gas to come out has uh -huh. got to be the most childish thing I've ever heard. But, you know, <laughs> California has a very specific state law about offshore drilling. You know, there was a huge oil spill off the coast of Santa Barbara that, uh, in 1969 that caused Richard Nixon, at the president at the time, to uh, create uh, all of these laws against offshore drilling to put California off limits, the offshore California uh, off limits to create the EPA, and all of these other environmental laws. So that was a Republican doing that. And it just kind of shows the complete departure from traditional conservatism that today's Republican Party and representatives have fallen into. This concept that, you know, oh, if you don't want to potentially imperil billions of dollars in California <laughs> tourism because you won't allow the oil companies to profit from offshore drilling and perhaps, you know, completely ruin the coastline, which yep. they've already done once before, that uh, this is somehow you hate science. It's, yep. you know, you hate oil and gas profits, I guess. Uh, you might be surprised to find out that uh, Stockman's number one source of corporate campaign donations in the 2012 election, the oil and gas industry. Yep. This but tweet brought to you by... Exxon, I suppose. And think about what this party wants to do to public education and the sciences. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they think that scientific evidence is liberal indoctrination, and they want to get rid of it in public schools. And, you know, of course, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. So they want to counter scientific evidence with um, a, a fair and balanced point of view from climate change deniers. Yeah. So, so basically, we would create more minds as stupid as that guy. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's well, you know, it helps. It helps their cause. If you uh, require people, if, if you, in order to get elected, you really need people to be ignorant, not educated, not understanding what the science actually says about these things, then it helps to gut education and to change the curriculum so that children don't learn actual science, because then when they grow up and they vote, they vote more with you. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of a long-term plan. Yeah. I would imagine that one man who didn't pay attention much during his, like, sixth grade physical science class, probably Steve Stockman of Texas, unfortunately. Uh, I like that he's at least thinking about the environment. I assume that the only real product of those tweets is probably a lot of Twitter mockery, I would imagine. That's one of the great things about Twitter, is that the politicians want to speak to you, but now you get to speak directly back to them or the college student who's managing their Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, the poor yeah. intern that's stuck with that.
And then one more absurd story about a bill that's trying to be uh, that that's in, in the works here. A Kansas bill would require teachers to misinform students about climate change. Legislating stupidity, legislating ignorance is here. The Kansas House Education Committee introduced a bill a few days ago that mandates teachers question the scientific basis of global warming, becoming the latest state to take up one of American uh, one of Alex's model bills aiming to misrepresent climate change. Kansas would join Texas, Louisiana, and Tennessee, and Oklahoma as the fifth state to cast climate change as, quote, controversial. Controversial. Not true. Ninety-seven percent of climate scientists actively publishing in the field agree climate change is human-caused. Now, the real sad thing here is that the children are the ones who are going to suffer. Let's look at the states that already have something along these lines. Texas ranked 32nd in education. Oklahoma ranked 39th in education, Tennessee ranked 42nd in education, and Louisiana ranked 45th in education, according to the National Kids Count Program from last year. Kansas is currently ranked 12th in education. In spite of this. Will this help or hurt their rankings if they pass it? Well, it would hurt. Right. And we see a circle. I mean, then these children, some of these children, are going to be the ones that eventually get elected and will probably try and pass uh, more legislation like this. Exactly. Right. Absolutely yeah. right. Unbelievable. We've got to be aware of this. I, I mean, the, these stories, ladies and gentlemen, I can't even believe we have three of these in one show to do. It, it's just incredible. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing what's going on. An unexpected opponent or problem in attempting to deal with the problem of climate change is that many uh, devout Christians think that, why should we bother? The end times are coming. Screw the world. <laughs> now, that sounds ridiculous, but there's actually some polling and some research to back it up. These are researchers at the University of Pittsburgh and also the University of Colorado have been working on this. Uh, and they believe that even once you take into account political ideology, religious identification, uh, media distrust, all these different factors, the simple fact that, that, that these Christians believe in the end times and that they are a coming uh, leads them to not care about climate change. They think that it's... Uh, the effect is about 20% of the opposition to climate change comes from that. And I believe what 76%. Really, yeah, it's yeah. hot. Yeah, I could be misreading it. 76% of Republicans in 2006 uh, thought that uh, there was going to be a second coming. Yeah. Okay. So, in their lifetime is usually a slightly smaller number, but a very significant number. Right. So three quarters of Republicans think, it, I mean, if you really believe it, if you really mm -hmm. believe that Jesus is going to return to earth, what is what difference does anything make? No. So that's actually, it's a logical extension that like, oh, we're burning up the planet. Who yeah. cares? Jesus is coming. And he's either going to save the planet or kill us all or whatever happens there in right, Armageddon. Also, it could also dramatically affect how you live your life, too, right? I mean, right. Like, like whatever, buy it. Buy it. Rack up the debt. Doesn't yeah. matter. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's a lot of people think Jesus is coming like Use up all the a couple oil. of years from now. Use up all the oil. Six months. Sure. And in fact, that's... There was a famous line from one of the Republicans saying, like, God didn't put all this oil in there. Oh, the, that oil was the greatest gift we had gotten got from God. Because you poke the earth with a, a needle or something, and oil comes out of it. Right. Yeah. And he's like, what a gift from God. 
obviously I take that gift and I use it up until yeah. Jesus returns. You drink our milkshake. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have a quote, by the way, uh, just to show you that this isn't just the, the, the run-of-the-mill voting Republicans, but also uh, people in government. This is uh, Representative John Shimkus back in 2010 said, The earth will end only when God declares it to be over. He is the chairman of the subcommittee on environment and the economy. Makes so sense. here's a guy charged with protecting our environment in some sense, saying, what effing difference does it make what happens in our environment? Because God decides when the earth ends. If it's 76%, if that number's high, I'm going to say it's high. Let's say it's 66%. I'm going to say it's two-thirds. It means one-third of Republicans don't believe this. Mm -hmm. One-third of Republicans, some version, one-fifth of Republicans, can recognize that when you vote for your that representative, and I believe me, I don't think the Democrats are a frickin' savior here. But when you send that guy to Congress, this is what you're doing. You're putting a guy, head of the Environment Subcommittee, and you're putting that guy in charge of it. That's the danger. That's why you have to bite the bullet and vote for the Democrat. Because at the very least, the guy who's in running the environment, who's going to be head of that committee, is going to be concerned about scientific issues of the day. Yeah. He's going to so and 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 it and it happens again and again and again. And when we hear you know when we hear guys like uh, you know who's our when we hear guys like Jim Inhofe mm -hmm. uh, open his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you can't have guys who are professionally cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Like, that's what they do. Can't they go around, they're like, cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> they're looking for Cocoa Puffs, like, 24-7 yeah. as the head of your committees on science, the so, environment, technology, etc. So don't you et think, guys like Dick Cheney, that that's why he became a Republican? Because Dick Cheney is so smart that he's like, well, I can control these people. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Man, he found one to control for eight years. But, yeah, yeah, six years, to be fair. Yeah, the last two, Bush was like, oh, I think Dick might have been present the last six years. <laughs> okay, um, so, so here we see the intersection between science and religion, and it can be very frustrating as a secular person to think that us, us who believe in science and facts and logic have to go up against this, and only once we fight, maybe we get some science out of it. It's very frustrating, and I found an image on the Internet that perfectly summed up how ridiculous these conflicts can be, and it was a series of different images, and the first one shows Earth. And then they zoom out, the next one shows the solar system. Then they zoom out, it's our portion of the Milky Way galaxy. One more zoom, the whole Milky Way galaxy, our region of galaxies. They go three or four more zooms, the entire known universe, where Earth is just the tiniest little fragment. And Jesus has his arms around it, and he's saying, don't masturbate. <laughs> That's how fucking stupid this conflict is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what he cares about. That's awesome. Me and Jesus come and hug and squeeze us. Cause you know that he's a simply Christerific dude. His eyes are bluish, bright and I love you-ish. And he's also Jewish, but he's not the least bit rude. Peter, my boy. Yes? Your sweet as chocolate cake. You bring me joy. And so I won't forsake you like the gays do me. And Jesus, what a happy pair. Together we're hotter than walking on water. We walk on I wanted to get to this story. There was a, a really good article at the Daily Beast by Mark Hertzgard, uh about BP, the 2010 Gulf oil spill, and the chemical dispersants BP was using at the time to, quote-unquote, clean up the oil. Now, 
I am very interested in this story because I've been following it since 2010. At the time of the oil spill, I wrote about chemical dispersants and how they had been banned in certain countries because they are highly, highly toxic. Um, and they don't really clean up the oil. They just coagulate it and sink it. It's like uh, poisonous duct tape. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so I got into a really bizarre email exchange with a PR person from BP where they lost their shit on me and uh, said to me, and I quote, what do you want from us? It was after they would like give you like a bullshit answer and you would press them. Bullshit answer, you'd press them. Bullshit answer, they'd press them. And I imagine the tone like, what do you want from me? What can I do to make you stop emailing me? Yeah, essentially, like, I just want you to go away. And I, I just kept asking about, you know, BP's cleanup efforts and, and stuff like that. But anyway, uh, that's the reason that I have really wanted to cover the story a lot on Citizen Radio. But Mark uh, Hertzgard for the Daily Beast wrote a phenomenal piece on the aftermath of the Gulf oil spill and the chemical dispersant and situation. it's worse than you think. It's absolutely horrific. And I'm going to link to it in the episode recap. I really recommend everybody read it in full, but here's the gist of it. Uh, there's one uh, woman that is profiled in the article. Her name's Jamie Griffin. Yeah, yeah. And... She was feeding hundreds of cleanup workers during the BP oil disaster. And the workers, when they were showing up to be fed, were tracking the gunk inside on their boots. And Griffin, as chief cook and maid, was trying to clean it up. So she contacted BP, you know, because she was wondering if this stuff was safe. And they said, quote, it's as safe as Dawn dishwashing liquid. But now what has happened to this woman is... Someone shut down the Dawn factory because that shit is poison. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely uh, horrific. So uh, Mark writes, by July, unstoppable muscle spasms were twisting her hands into immovable claws. In August, she began losing her short-term memory. After cooking professionally for 10 years, she couldn't remember the recipe for vegetable soup. One morning, she got in the car to go to work, only to discover she hadn't put on pants. The right side, but only the right side, of her body started acting crazy. It felt like the nerves were coming out of my skin. It was so painful. My right leg swelled. My ankle would get as wide as my calf, and my skin got incredibly itchy. And um, so he talks with this doctor who says, these are the same symptoms experienced by soldiers who return from the Persian Gulf War with Gulf War Syndrome. So it's worse than we thought. Um, There's another article that I'm going to link to at TakePart.com where scientists have discovered the chemical agents used in the Gulf spill cleanup are destroying marine life. Jesus. So not only are they destroying the lives of these, you know, the, the workers who cleaned up the, the oil spill, but also uh, some of their livelihoods. These fishermen, you know, and uh, fish, you know, people who fish for a living are going to go back to work. And they have already found this, that there's a lot of dead fish, a lot of dead crabs. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of recap, going back to the dispersant, um, BP comes in. And they have a massive spill, um, destroying wildlife, land, food supplies, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Then they use 
uh, a toxic chemical which has now made a ton of people very ill. Uh, children, I mean, if you just walked in it, if you breathed in the fumes, uh, you know, we're seeing the effects. And why? Well, the dispersant doesn't even fix the problem. All it does, BP essentially, and this company, all it does is they are poisoning people so that they could give the illusion that the oil was gone yeah. so that cameras would leave. Yeah, that's that, how little they give a shit about you. And these are the companies that get tax breaks. Yeah, that's a big, big part of the, the chemical dispersion story that I think people thought, you know, it was going to magically evaporate the oil. Yeah, it's exactly what Jamie said. It sunk it. It hit it. Um and scientists found all kinds of like, you know, underwater, underwater plumes of the oil. Well, yeah. Simpsons fish. So. <laughs> so, you know, BP was fined by the government, but then they were able to get that cut by like $3 billion. And I think when people see the huge amount of money BP had to pay the government, they're like, that'll stop them. But when you compare that little fine to how much profit they make on risky, uh, uh, you know, underground drilling, like what happened in the Gulf, uh, it's really not an incentive for them to stop. No, and if they, every once in a while they have to pay, you know, a little bit of for them pocket change, they're going to keep doing it. I mean, they they essentially have like a uh, uh, a fuck up fund. You know what I mean? Yeah, like exactly. They have money where th- that's just what they do, and, and and you see that it doesn't scare other companies. I mean, look what Exxon. You know, there was another spill in Arkansas with Exxon. And how did our intrepid media handle it? Well, Exxon said there's a no-fly zone. So, okay. How does Exxon declare that? Yeah, and I mean, that happened, um, you know, we see this happen all the time in, uh, as you said, Exxon, but also BP at the time was telling journalists they could go certain places, but not other places. I had friends, journalists, friends of mine, go to the Gulf and yeah, they were told by BP they couldn't go to certain areas and watch the cleanup effort. And it's like, I'm sorry, I didn't realize BP and Exxon were the US government. Right. But they kind of are. It's like they give massive donations to the government to the point where the government, when a disaster like this happens, largely lets them regulate the cleanup effort. Well we saw that with Occupy Wall Street where, you know, you had Chase and these banks giving the NYPD donations suddenly of like a ton of money. Uh, at the same time that the cops were beating the shit out of protesters and evicting, uh, you know, and evicting them from, from Zuccotti Park. And it's like, how is this legal? Right. Like, I mean, it's, it, it's under the table bribes, except there's no table. Like, it's not even under the table. It's just fucking blatant. Over the table bribes. Hey. <laughs> Hey there, listeners. So I, I really don't have many good things to say about companies. You've probably noticed. Uh, so the fact that you're hearing me say this means that a company's come along and, and done something really different to get me to want to do an advertisement for them. And so, you know, if you're like me, you've probably chosen your cell phone service provider based on the, the company with the products and services that you hated the least. That seems pretty standard these days. But, you know, luckily, this, this company came along, Ting, like the sound of a bell, Ting. They came along and they basically took note of what everyone hates about cell phone companies. And then they did the exact opposite of all of that. 
So first of all, they don't have contracts. So if you check them out, you know you can try them. If you don't like them, you're not stuck like you would be with with another company. Secondly, they don't make you pay for anything you don't use. Normally, people you know they they set you up with a plan with a certain number of minutes or texts or, or data for your phone, and and then you end up having to stay under a certain amount or you get hit with overage charges. But with Ting, there's no overage. You just pay for what you use, so you never end up paying for anything you don't use, and you never get hit with overage charges. So it's a pretty good deal. I like the philosophy behind it, especially. I love not paying for things that I'm not using, obviously. And so as a listener of the show, you actually get a $25 discount on either service or a device if you want to buy a phone through their company. Uh, If you go to the specific URL, best.ting.com. And so they actually have a savings calculator on there. So you check it out. You know, if you like what you see, then you can even put in your information of what you're paying now, and they'll tell you whether or not you're going to save money before you even have to sign up. So, like I say, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I like the philosophy behind it, and you know, and then as a bonus, you get 25 bucks if you want to try them out uh, through best.ting.com. Growing up in small-town Texas, I quickly learned about fighting, including this valuable lesson. You should never hit a man with glasses. You should use something much heavier. This also applies to fighting for our good earth against rapacious profiteers, the spillers and spewers, frackers and extractors, drillers and pipeliners who view our environment, communities, health, and happiness as barriers to commerce that must be shoved aside. The heaviest tool we have for striking back is the indomitable human spirit that, when pushed, produces a fierce feistiness, tenacity, and organized resistance. I can even put a name to this spirit. Nancy Zorn. She's a 79-year-old grandmother from War Acres, Oklahoma, who's refusing to be shoved out of the way of ExxonMobil, TransCanada Corporation, and other giants that are trying to force the massive Keystone XL pipeline down America's throat. That pipeline would carry a nasty extra-toxic sludge oil from the tar sands of Alberta, Canada, to oil export facilities in Port Arthur, Texas. The crude would be piped right through Oklahoma, where TransCanada already is underway with construction. Well, it was underway until Grandmother Zorn literally put her neck on the line. Using a bicycle lock on April 9th, she attached her own neck to one of TransCanada's huge earth-moving machines, halting construction. I can no longer sit by idly, she declared. It is time to rise up and defend our home. It is my hope that this one small action today will inspire many to protect this land and our water. This is Jim Hightower saying, of course, TransCanada had Nancy arrested. But it can't stop her and thousands of other spirited souls from continuing to fight this destructive corporate greed. Join them. They're organized as the Great Plains Tar Sands Resistance at gptarsandsresistance.org. Where time itself is frozen, suspended in the air. Now the water flows on Kilimanjaro, damaging the essence of our atmosphere. Threatens our existence, Kilimanjaro. Oh, Kilimanjaro. Oh, Kilimanjaro. Oh, Kilimanjaro. Oh, Kilimanjaro. Joe Biden came out this week. 
And uh, it was reported by, well, it was reported a couple of places, but he had another one of those moments, not unlike his time at the cafe during the uh, last election, which was, let's talk about Social Security, I think he said. Um, or There is no way we are going to allow anything to change with Social Security. Now, of course, six months later, the Obama administration comes up with a budget that says, let's cut uh, the, the chain CPI. And I want to get back to that in a moment. But uh, this story, uh, apparently... At either like a handshaking line or somewhere around where Joe Biden was going around, Elaine Cooper, on the executive committee of the Sierra Club, South Carolina chapter, chapter, uh, had an exchange with Biden where he basically said, I'm against Keystone, but I'm the minority in the administration. Now, I read that. Who said that to Biden? Uh, Biden said that to Elaine Cooper. Oh, wow. Uh, she said, Look at him off message again. Well, I don't know. Because he said, this is what he said. Yes, I do support rejecting the Keystone Pipeline, but I'm in the minority. I think he's on message. I think he's on message for 2016. And I think he's basically saying... I was uh, thinking that too. Off message for them, but on message for him. Right. He's basically saying Keystone is uh, a fait accompli with this administration... But I want you to know right now, before that decision's even made, I'm going to, in very uh, unofficial way, say I'm against it. But I'm a team player. I mean, so, you know, we're seeing Joe Biden, I think maybe even as early as last uh, summer, starting to set up his campaign as distancing himself from any of the more, More controversial aspects. Yes. In other words, we could see it play out on Social Security and some other things, too, particularly if President Obama keeps having uh, fun nighttime uh, BS sessions with Paul Ryan. Right. I mean, this over, is... Over no. Ayn Rand's, uh, what Ayn Rand liked to do in her spare time, uh, how uh, taxation is really a form of Hitler, you know, <laughs> things like that. Well, let's, I mean, let's also remember, though, that Joe Biden was also the one who... Um, who basically undercut uh, a lot of what was happening in terms of the fiscal cliff and went in and made a deal with McConnell, So, according to reporting. So it's just interesting to see how people are setting themselves up relative to the Obama administration. Take a walk in New York City, stroll down a street in Chicago or mosey about in any major city in America or even in the world. In major metropolitan areas and cities, it's nearly impossible to find a patch of land that hasn't been built up and covered with high-rises, skyscrapers, pavement, sidewalk. It's even harder to find signs of nature like grasses, bushes, or trees. But a new study shows that the few trees that do exist in major urban money in major urban areas are worth a ton of money. According to the U.S. Forest Service, trees in cities in urban areas hold an estimated value of fifty billion dollars, as they provide valuable environmental services like storing carbon. These researchers found that. Urban trees, city trees, store an estimated 708 million tons of carbon. 
In addition, researchers discovered that annual net carbon uptake by these trees is estimated at 21 million tons, which translates into $1.5 billion in economic benefits to us. U.S. Forest Service Chief Tom Tidwell said in a press release about this study, quote, With expanding urbanization, city trees and forests are becoming increasingly important to sustain the health and well-being of our environment in our communities. He went on to say, I hope this study will encourage people to look at their neighborhood trees a little differently and start thinking about ways they can help care for their own urban forests. So if you live in a big city, New York, Chicago, any of America's major urban centers, maybe it's time to channel your inner Johnny Appleseed and do a whole lot of good for your environment and community. Plant a tree. Lord, that goes Johnny Appleseed. He might pass by in the hour of need. There's a lot of souls. From the well, locked in a factory. Let's play this clip from the um the day after, I guess it was, uh, Tim DeChristopher was released from prison. Uh, he spoke at a Q&A session after uh, a showing of the film Bitter 70, Bidder 70 in, uh, in Salt Lake City. And um, this is uh, part of what he had to say. The next step for the climate movement is they stop waiting for people like me to tell them what the next step is. You know, I've, I've been pretty isolated for the last couple of years, and, uh, and uh, there's been a lot going on. Uh, you know, things have, have progressed pretty rapidly while I've been locked up, um, and I've been, tried to follow that as much as I could, uh, and a lot of what I've seen has been encouraging. Before I got locked up, the, the Occupy movement hadn't even started. Uh, it, it didn't exist before I got locked up. Like, the biggest social movement in my lifetime in this country uh, happened, and I missed it. <laughs> I only saw it on television, uh, and and that wasn't very good coverage, frankly. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people that uh, feel moved to take action, that are that are concerned, um, and that, that want to do something, um, but feel like, oh, I'm just one person. Um, what can I do? And and I think uh, I hope that we're getting to a point where. Um, we're building enough connections as a movement that that people know that they're not just one one isolated person uh, taking action, but uh, they're they're one person taking a step with a movement connected to them, uh, and and everybody can uh, can push out in in all the different ways um, that that they can think of. Uh, you know, when Cesar Chavez talked about being well organized as a movement, uh, he said, "For us, being well organized is not." everybody doing the same thing or everybody being on the same page. Um, when our movement is well organized, that means that everybody is pushing on the wall, in, all in their own spots. And, and when, some, when one person finds that weak spot in that wall that gives a little bit, we all push behind that spot until it opens up. And, and makes a crack in that wall, and we, and we all wedge through that and, and open it up into a wider gap. Um, 
And, and that's what an organi- for, for Cesar Chavez, that's what an organized movement looked like, not uh, all, all, all the people following the direction of one person or one group, um, but all the people trying different things, and, and a lot of them not working. Uh, but the ones that do, we all mobilize behind them uh, and push together. Um, and, and I think that's what we need, a movement that uh, is a little bit out of control. If you love the ocean, if you've got a favorite beach somewhere, you are probably used to the idea that the ocean you love sometimes takes away the beach you love. But it doesn't usually happen in this dramatic a fashion. This is Popham Beach in mid-coast Maine, where the water has been stealing back the beach at an alarming rate. Yeah, okay. What we're seeing here is not an unusually stormy day at Popham Beach. This is kind of regular. This is the way it goes. A local official telling the Bangor paper that in some spots, quote, there is no beach anymore at high water. Here we have Plum Island in Newbury, Massachusetts. This is what happened after a storm in February when the water came in. This was the headline for Plum Island the next month, Move It or Lose It. And by that they mean your house. Move it or lose it because you can't stay here. This is the Belt Parkway in New York City. Eighty years ago, the city felt confident enough to build this road along the coastal southern edge of Brooklyn, New York. But now it floods in heavy rain, and the ocean bay sweeps over it, even in moderate storms. The ocean is not where we left it. It is moving on up. Turns out we are changing the climate. Ask me how. You could argue that any particular disappearing beach or flooded road results from factors that only belong to that one place. You can argue that for a lot of individual places. But ultimately, they start to add up and ultimately realize that what you cannot argue without assuming the mantle of willful ignorance is that the Earth is just getting warmer. It is getting warmer because of us. We burn fossil fuels in our cars and power plants and so on. That puts extra carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That traps more heat from the sun than our little planet is used to. All that carbon dioxide settles around us like a heavy blanket in August, like the sweaty covers you want to kick away but you cannot. Because of all the carbon we're adding to the atmosphere, the Earth has not been this warm in at least 4,000 years. How's that for a blunt headline? Global temperatures highest in 4,000 years. That news arrived a few weeks ago from scientists at Oregon State. Ready for your additional scary numbers? This time from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. This is the average amount of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. The chart starts with 1960. Go forward. As of April, we were here, way up here in scary, scary land, about to set a new threshold for carbon dioxide. The scientist who drew this chart, Ralph Keeling, said at the time, I wish it were not true. I wish it weren't true, but it looks like the world is going to blow through the 400 parts per million level without losing a beat. And here we go. We blew through that level, apparently, yesterday. And we are on our way to making this the new normal in a hurry. We may even be there now. We may already have more carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere for sustained lengths of time than at any point in the history of humans as a species. 
Our planet has not been shrouded in that much carbon dioxide since the Pliocene epoch more than three million years ago when there were no humans and there were still eight-foot-tall carnivorous birds like this guy running around at 65 miles an hour. Also, the sea levels were 100 feet higher than they are now instead of the merely 25 feet higher, which is what we like to imagine when we think about climate change. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. The news that came out Saturday wasn't surprising, but it wasn't welcome either. I'm referring to the report that the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has reached 400 parts per million, a level that the planet Earth hasn't seen in about 3 million years. It's not a healthy level at all. As one scientist at Columbia said, it feels like the inevitable march toward disaster. With ever-increasing amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, global warming is going to exact a brutal toll with massive floods in low-lying areas and severe droughts and wildfires in others, plus the storm of the century every couple of years now. We're reaping what we sowed. In the U.S., the oil companies and the mining companies grabbed just as much as they could. They distorted policy away from conservation and mass transit, and they resisted every effort to curtail pollution. ExxonMobil and Peabody Coal have a lot to account for, as does GM. For decades, we've been the biggest polluter on Earth, and now China has surpassed us, proving that our way of life isn't exportable. Because if everyone in China has a car that burns gas, the Earth is going to fry. I hope this latest report is the slap in the face that Congress and the world's leaders need. Time is a-wasting, and so is the globe. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. So why don't we get together And we could waste everything tonight And we could waste and we could waste it all Tonight Yeah There was one year, 1997, 1998, there was one year that was particularly cold. Um, and I, as I recall, it was, was it Mount Pinatubo? There was a volcanic event of some sort. My recollections was 98 or 99. I was wondering why Myron was saying in the last 15 years we haven't seen much warming. Because, we've, you know, it's been steadily going up since, since the 1950s, real substantially. And so if you'd had one particularly cold year as a result of a volcanic event, you know, throwing a lot of ash into the sky, reflecting the sunlight off, so it's called the albedo effect, um, reducing the temperature of the earth. If you had one particularly cold year, if you went back to that, if you started counting from that cold year and then you took the warmer years since then, I mean, you know, 11 out of the 12 last years have been the hottest, each one has been the hottest year in the history as far as we can tell, the human race.
certainly of the modern human race, the modern, you know, keeping track of temperatures. But I had, and, and I hadn't heard that, you know, oh, in the last 15 years before. And so I'm guessing that there's, that, that, uh, we're dealing with some, but on the, uh, A, B, have you, have you seen the ice creeping across the ground in, in, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin, in Minnesota and some of the Northern Plains states? There's a video, the AP has a video out, um, they're over at Raw Story, you can see it. It's like, you know, this two foot or foot t- tall layer of ice just moving along at about, uh, you know, a foot every, uh, a couple of feet a minute or a couple of feet an hour rather. And sounding like a freight train moving across this yard in Minnesota. And it's because, apparently, because the, the Arctic ice is, you know, we've lost over a million square miles of Arctic ice from what's normally there this time of year. And as a result of that, you know, the, 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 the instead of reflecting the sunlight back up and out, uh, the ocean is absorbing that heat and staying warm, and that is creating higher low-pressure systems up there that didn't used to exist that are pushing, apparently, the, the, the jet stream south and, and keeping the cold air farther south. And that's why, you know, we haven't, we're just starting to have spring here in Washington, D.C., and normally it would be in the 80s or 90s here this time of year. I'm wearing a sweater today. I mean, it's, it's 59 degrees outside right now. So it's not, I mean, yes, the, the planet itself is warming. We have 5% more moisture, more water vapor in the air, so the storms are more violent events, more precipitation. Where there's precipitation, more aridity, more dryness, more desert where there's desert. This, uh, the IPCC says uh, the rising temperatures put 20 to 30 percent of plant and animal species at risk of extinction. I mean, that's no small thing. That's, 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 that's a very, very big deal. The World Bank said we're going to have severe crop yield reductions as a consequence of this. We're already seeing that last year. I mean, you know. Not, and not just last year, each of the last 11 of the last 12 years. Here's another way that the Wall Street Journal was incredibly disingenuous in this. And it's just, it's, it's really quite mind boggling. In their op-ed, they said CO2 levels, current CO2 levels are low by the standards of geologic and plant evolution, evolutionary history. In other words, there was a time, in fact, they say, you know, that there was a time when carbon dioxide levels were 3,000 parts per million. Right now we're hitting 400. Yeah, that was the Paleogene period. That was 65 million years ago. And, you know, if you want to go back to that, I mean, that, that was 65 million years ago was when a, an asteroid hit the Earth. Uh, killed off the dinosaurs. Apparently, you know, kicked up a lot of carbon dioxide. I, you know, I don't know the exact mechanism by which this happened, but since humans came out of the trees or out of the seas or wherever we came out of, the seas is the hairless ape theory. For those of you interested, it's a fascinating hypothesis that 
the reason that we're the only primate that can give birth in water, standing in water. Women can give birth and the baby, you know, the, the placenta doesn't immediately disconnect. It's, it's attached for five or, t- five or ten minutes after the birth, or can be. And so the baby can literally float underwater without breathing. As long as the placenta is still connected, the baby's getting oxygen through the umbilical cord. And uh, we're the only mammal that can do that. And we're also the only mammal that has no hair on it, you know, over most of our bodies. We're the hairless ape. And so why is that? Well, there's this one hypothesis that at some point in human history, and keep in mind, human history is only 165,000 years old, that at some point there was probably some sort of catastrophic event and, and one that's that's been uh, pointed to. I write about this in my book, The Edison Gene, actually. It's a chapter about this. Uh, happened, as I recall, about 90 million years ago, when there may have been as few as 40,000 humans on the entire planet. And the only ones who survived, because the, the, the land mass, everybody was living in Africa, and the land mass was just basically on fire because of the this atmospheric change. And the only people who survived were those who were literally standing in the water, in the ocean water, at the, at the edge of the uh, continental land mass for maybe a generation or two. It's called a bottleneck event, using Stephen Jay Gould's hypothesis of how evolution happens. And so all the rest of us, all of our aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters, they all died off. And just the hairless ones who could give birth underwater survived, who were probably mutants, you know, or variations. It's an interesting theory. But in any case, we have, as a human race, never seen 400 parts per million carbon in our atmosphere, ever. study that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences finds that if you market light bulbs as energy efficient and good for the environment, conservatives are less likely to purchase them. Uh, this story is unbelievable. Now, if, if you didn't mark them as environmentally helpful, uh, the conservatives actually were just as likely to buy it as liberals. They say, oh, okay, it maybe saves money, it's energy efficient, etc. No problem, right? If you put on the stamp there that says, protect the environment, they go, oh, yeah? <laughs> and they become less likely to buy the light bulb. Same exact price, nothing different. They would probably save money because it's more efficient. It's a, but I'm not going to protect their environment. I'm going to take a big dump on their environment. <laughs> I'm a conservative. So there are two reasons why this is happening. Okay, First of all, our politics have become so polarized, and it's been... It's two teams against one another, right? Even though both teams are pretty similar when you really look into it and, you know... And both teams are losing. (laughs) Morons, they got us pitted against each other when, in fact, it's the people who are at the top of the, you know, the financial community and the donors and the lobbyists controlling our politicians. They're the ones we should be focusing on in order to fix the system. Instead, you... You're not buying a cheap light bulb because somebody put you on a team that said you're supposed to hate the environment. 
I know, it's incredible. But it, it also feeds into this notion that conservatives have that being energy efficient and caring about the environment will lead to the apocalypse, right? And why do I say it that way? Because you have people like Michelle Bachman arguing that environmentalists want us to live in hobbit homes and they want to destroy our lifestyle. And they want us to live, uh, you know, they want us to move toward a gateway to dystopia. Right? That, mm -hmm. That's one of the arguments that conservatives always say. And by the way, when it comes to light bulbs specifically, back in 2011, you know, when uh, the, the U.S. started passing regulations when it comes to energy efficient light bulbs, she said the following I think Thomas Edison did a pretty patriotic thing for his country by inventing the light bulb. And I think darn well, you New Hampshireites, she was talking to people in New Hampshire, if you want to buy Thomas Edison's wonderful inve uh, invention, you should be able to. But no one's telling you you can't buy it. Like, you can buy it, but the government is trying to move toward energy efficiency to save the environment and to save energy. I just don't understand what, why anyone would be against that. At the time of Thomas Edison, we had the horse and buggy. And by God, you have the right to get that horse and buggy. Don't buy into these liberals with their newfangled automobiles and the airplanes. That they Don't take that stuff. If Good enough for Thomas Edison, good enough for you. And by the way, you know who lives in the environment? Everybody! Conservatives, I got bad news for you. You also live on the planet, and this is all of our environment. So if you destroy it, you don't get to laugh at the liberals go, Ha ha, I destroyed your planet. Oh shit, I'm on it too. Hi Jay, Seek Veracity here, calling from Portland, Maine. I wanted to add something to the conversation that Fozzie started in the last show, in regards to people being afraid of their government and its wide scope of surveillance. Fozzie used an often heard phrase, what are you doing and what are you afraid of, in regards to people that he described as potentially irrational and to be afraid of the government watching our every move. Fozzie, the more realistic question to pose is, what are you doing and what is the government afraid of? I feel it's extremely important to look at how the government and local law enforcement has monitored, harassed, abused peaceful protesters and journalists at demonstrations over the last couple of years, especially during the heyday of Occupy Wall Street. ACLUs across the country have uncovered surveillance and response plots in regards to these individuals that are speaking truth to power from the very basis of their constitutional rights, the freedom to assemble, speak to the public, yet police forces are armed to the teeth and they're found at every large event. As an occupier and a supporter of Anonymous and WikiLeaks, I do not find it irrational at this point to look at the evidence in front of me and to be worried about how far this administration or any future administration would go to silence dissent. In uh, a quick Ben Franklin quote, uh, those who can give up essential liberty to obtain little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Uh, thanks, Jay, for the show. Really appreciating the focus on civil liberties as of late. Take care. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, and I'm calling in response to the kind of the conversation between This Week in Blackness, you and Fozzie in the recent episode. I think all three, the drug war, 
the cameras and the gun registration have already been proven in, in England to be all exactly the same problem. What they are is prophylactic forms of control that are supposedly you give up a little bit of your rights and you're going to get some security. All three of them proved to be ineffective. The violent crime rates uh, continued to climb in, in England until they finally added some police in about 2005, 2006. They added up several tens of thousands of police to the streets, and that's what really fixed it. But in the meantime, they got all these cameras, they, get, they have their drug war, they have their, their gun registration. None of these actually prevents crime, they just create a new class of criminal. So the drug war, you get people who are using but not hurting anybody when they use. In, in uh, gun registration, you mostly, you don't really solve murders with it. You just get the guy who, who registered his gun when he moved to a new address 15 days late. And so now you've got a new class of crime instead of actually somebody who really hurt somebody. It doesn't really solve murders. People don't use a registered gun to murder people unless it's, uh, unless it's never instrumental in finding a criminal. It's, but what they also do is they divert huge police resources to invading the privacy of the citizens, all three of them, the drug war, the cameras, and the, the gun registration, divert huge amounts of police resources so that there's less police to actually solve real crime. So you do end up less safe and with less rights. So that trade-off between liberty and security, we, you always lose when you try to make that trade-off. Hey, Jay, it's Ty calling from Yuma, Arizona. I just wanted to call about the comparison between uh, people not liking cameras being in their faces and uh, people not being comfortable being on a gun registry list. You didn't talk with your comparison that you made, but I, I think that you missed something blatantly obvious, which is uh, we already have a group of people in this country that are unfortunately discriminated against it and highly criminalized because of the color of their skin. Look at the NYPD and the stop and first policies, things like that. Uh, I think that cameras being put up everywhere would definitely make minorities a lot less comfortable. Um, and, I mean, Matt, that called in directly after me, he, I, his, he said that his dad programs these cameras, and you can absolutely program those algorithms to pick up anything. So if you don't think that they would be used to discriminate based on the color of your skin, I mean, I think that that's something that would absolutely happen. So just wanted to put that out there. Thanks, Jay. You do a great job. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I have to say, I am mostly not surprised at the comments I got in response to the cameras and the privacy issue. You know, some of them were were right out of, you know, a script book. I could have predicted them. You know, of course, the, the very standard but very important response to, you know, if you're not doing anything illegal, then what do you have to be worried about is, hey, we're not the ones who are supposed to be afraid of the government. It's supposed to be the other way around. Uh, you know, very good, important 
you know, something I agree with needs to be repeated over and over again. You know, but I, I could have seen that one coming. And then, of course, mentioning the perspective that, you know, cameras, as with any sort of, you know, p- police enforcement or, or security measures, is very, very likely to uh, adversely affect uh, minorities in America at a, you know, disproportionate rate. And, you know, again, standard, but very important. Uh, you know, it's something I agree with, needs to be said over and over again, but just still very inside the box type of thinking. But a, a call came in that I, I didn't have time to play because I'm just going to talk about it instead. Larry from Southeast Texas, I want to thank for calling in because he, he, he essentially just wanted to recommend a book. He said, hey, check out this book, The Transparent Society. And so this is uh, this is by David Brin. And so what I'm going to do is mostly just read the book description and not comment on it too much uh, and, and let me know what you guys think. This is definitely what I would consider outside the box thinking. And it, actually, it just occurred to me, this book was published in 1999. I didn't, uh, I, I hadn't noticed that until just now. So that's a pre-9-11 perspective on this. This is interesting. So the, the description says, In New York and Baltimore, police cameras scan public areas 24 hours a day. Huge commercial databases track your finances and sell that information to anyone willing to pay. Host sites on the World Wide Web record every page you view, and smart toll roads know where you drive. Every day, new technology nibbles at our privacy. Does that make you nervous? David Brin is worried, but not just about privacy. He fears that society will overreact to these technologies by restricting the flow of information, frantically enforcing a reign of secrecy. Such measures, he warns, won't really preserve our privacy. Governments, the wealthy, criminals, and the techno-elite will still find ways to watch us, but we'll have fewer ways to watch them. We'll lose the key to a free society, accountability. The Transparent Society is a call for reciprocal transparency. If police cameras watch us, shouldn't we be able to watch police stations? If credit bureaus sell our data, shouldn't we know who buys it? Rather than cling to an illusion of anonymity, a historical anomaly given our origins in close-knit villages, we should focus on guarding the most important forms of privacy and preserving mutual accountability. The biggest threat to our freedom, Brin warns, is that surveillance technology will be used by too few people, not by too many. A society of glass houses may seem too fragile. Fearing technology-aided crime, governments seek to restrict online anonymity. Fearing technology-aided tyranny, citizens call for encrypting all data. Brin shows how, contrary to both approaches, windows offer much better protection than walls. After all, the strongest deterrent against snooping has always been the fear of being spotted. Furthermore, Bren argues, Western culture now encourages eccentricity. We're programmed to rebel. That gives our society a natural protection against error and wrongdoing, like a body's immune system. But social T-cells need openness to spot trouble and get the word out. The transparent society is full of such provocative and far-reaching analysis. The inescapable rush of technology is forcing us to make new choices about how we want to live. This daring book reminds us that an open society is more robust and flexible than one where secrecy reigns. In an era of nat-sized cameras, universal databases, and clothes-penetrating radar, it will be more vital than ever for us to be able to watch the watchers. With reciprocal transparency, we can detect dangers early and expose wrongdoers. 
We can gauge the credibility of pundits and politicians. We can share technological advances and news. But all of those benefits depend on the free two-way flow of information. So there you go. That's definitely a new perspective to take on this. And if you've been listening closely, I actually said not too long ago, not in any way related to this subject, something to the effect of a broader concept that sometimes it's easier to redirect a river than to convince it to flow back upstream. And if the argument is that ubiquitous cameras are an inevitability, this may be another option of how to deal with that inevitability. Although we may not like the fact that there are cameras everywhere, if they're going to be everywhere, this may be another option. I'm not reflexively opposed to it. I mean, it makes me sort of queasy, uh, you know, absolute transparency everywhere. But, I mean, arguments could be made. Uh, and, uh, you know, I certainly like the idea of being able to watch the watchers instead of it just being a one-way path. So, again, please let me know what you think on this. I would love to hear arguments against it. Right now, it sounds to me like the least worst option that we have. Uh, but, you know, I, I would love to hear any thoughts you have. Again, the number 202-999-3991. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who uh, support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can spread the word of clips you particularly like through your social networks and stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor